customers who face challenges in accessing an application will eventually give up and find an alternative application, typically from another company. So CX and SIAM is the penultimate priority uh, immediately following security. And the rise of new technologies like passwordless access, which I'm a big believer in, are changing expectations customers have for SIAM. And thus, customer experience is becoming a key differentiator for many customers and companies. Welcome to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast, where we share short and to the point perspectives on the cyber landscape. It's all about engaging yet casual conversations on what organizations are doing to reimagine their cyber programs while ensuring their business objectives are top priority. With my co-host, Stan Wisseman, Head of Security Strategists. I'm Rob Borrego, Chief Security Strategist, and this is Reimagining Cyber. So Stan, who do we have joining us for this episode? Rob, our guest today is Gary Phillips. Gary is currently the VP of Customer Identity Access Management, or CIAM, at E-Trade, which is now part of Morgan Stanley. I first met Gary back when he was serving as the CISO of Time Warner Enterprise Services, and he subsequently has uh, been a security leader at SunTrust Bank and IHG. Gary, it's great to have you with us. Can you start by sharing a little bit more about your background? Sure, and thanks, Dan. Um, so going way back, I'm a Georgia Tech graduate with a degree in computer science. I spent the first half of my career in research and development, initially designing hardware and firmware, then climbing up the stack into software and also climbing up the career stack into leadership roles. In 2005, I had the opportunity to jump into a cybersecurity leadership role in the form of product security at Symantec. And I've been in cybersecurity ever since then and really enjoy it. That role at Symantec grew to encompass many aspects of what I've really established as a practice in my career of preventive cybersecurity. So that's kind of been my specialty ever since. So, so Gary, now you're in this role with Identity Access Management, or IAM, um, and it's his, or a flavor of that. And historically, that's been centered on an organization's workforce. You know, it's used to manage access of users to internal services, right? Um, whereas CIAM services are generally associated with customers or consumers accessing websites and mobile apps. Um, you know, their, their engagement with an organization from the outside. And I, I'll note that also that C in, in this case, for you, an E-Trade is customer, but it could also mean citizen, right? If it's dealing with um, a government or even consumer in some cases. But whatever that C represents, it's a different type of identity access management you know, than the workforce one. So what are some of the differences that you're seeing between the two? Because you've had that role of head of IAM at IHG, and now you're doing it for CIAM for E-Trade. What are you seeing that, as the differences? You know, the first thing that really hit me in the face was the difference of scale. Um, dealing with a much larger number of users, uh, although the roles and, and the model for the roles are much simpler than they were for what's often called employee IAM or enterprise IAM, sometimes EIAM. <laughs> if you could make a three-letter acronym harder to pronounce, I'm not sure how <laughs> you would do it and put three vowels at the beginning of it. Um, that was the first thing. And the scale also comes into play in a, in a less intense way, which is integrations. When you're dealing with employee IAM, you're dealing with not 
surprisingly hundreds of applications potentially. And when it comes to customer IAM, it you know tops out at maybe 10. And so the integration count goes way, way down while the head count goes up. And at IHG, we had many, many employees. It was a large enterprise. We had about 600,000 credentials in our database. But at E-Trade, for customer side, we have about 10 million, actually over 10 million. Uh, so it's a completely different scale that you're dealing with. And interestingly enough, user experience is very important in both spaces, but it's probably even more important in the customer space than it is with the employee space. And with employees, you can kind of say, well, it is what it is and deal with it. And with customers, you can't do that. You have to uh, accede to their needs. They may, they may run the, away, right? I mean, if, yeah. if it's not a good experience for them, they could just go to a different platform if they prefer. Exactly, exactly. And then the final thing is fraud. And of course, you've got fraud on both sides. With employees, you're dealing with insider threats, but you come at it with some amount of initial trust to say, well, this person's an employee, therefore we're going to trust them with access to these things and we're going to give them certain entitlements. But when you have a customer coming at you, the initial uh, approach is to take no trust and verify everything at that point and look for opportunities for fraud. So, so Gary, you've hit upon a couple of things that we're going to, I think double click into a bit more. And when you look at the kind of core tenets of CIM, at least the way I look at it, I, I think about the experience aspect, absolutely. Uh, trust, security, privacy. So if we look at the experience and let's go into that a bit more, um, are you seeing from an organizational perspective and the different kind of engagement they're having that it's much more of a realization at this point that the experience is truly becoming a differentiator for them as an organization? And driving at you know how they better engage with those customers, how they have you know different kind of capabilities for loyalty, uh, you know keeping the brand, promoting the brand from the customer adoption side of it. You know what, what are you seeing? I mean, is the business understanding the opportunity for increasing the customer population adoption, revenue, you know, all of those elements coming in together as part of a CIM program? Yeah, I, I think this is true for every aspect of customer experience, and SIAM is the front door to customer experience. Customers who face challenges in accessing an application will eventually give up and find an alternative application, and typically from another company. So CX and SIAM is the penultimate priority uh, immediately following security. And the rise of new technologies like passwordless access, which I'm a big believer in, are changing expectations customers have for SIAM. And thus, customer experience is becoming a key differentiator for many customers and companies. This is a bit different, but a good example I had recently, I've been a customer of Hulu going back a couple of years for their live streaming service. Um, but I recently made the change to YouTube TV for live streaming, partly due to the deeper DVR capacity, but mostly because the user experience is so much cleaner than Hulu's, at least for, for my way of thinking. I know everyone's experience is a little different. And for me, I really like the YouTube uh, customer experience and, and it fits a lot better with how I tend to view me streaming media. So I believe the same kind of thinking extends to the SIAM experience and enterprises would be well advised to invest in this space. So, so Gary, just expanding on that experience question, again, that, that balance between usability and making it easy for the consumer. And, and again, in that context with your competition, right? You wanna make it 
such that you are the one that's easier to use. But at the same time, you have to think about this, you know, the adequate strength of mechanism, right? You know, we, we want to make sure it's a, a, it's a strong enough authentication that you're not going to get walked over either, right? I mean, multi-factor or some kind of way of validating um, that that customer truly is who they're saying they are. So what what are you seeing as far as how best to balance that question of usability and security? You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of passwordless. I, me- I mentioned that earlier, and I've worked with a couple of startup companies that are doing some great work around passwordless. So that's the vision I'm pushing for. And thus, you would embrace MFA, multi-factor authentication, and de-emphasize the need for passwords. Now, passwords wouldn't just go away altogether, but they would be limited in their, in their scope of use uh, for occasional use, primarily when step-up authentication is needed. So uh, like in MySpace, for instance, if somebody wants to instigate a wire transfer, uh, we might require them to re-authenticate with MFA and provide the password uh, before we would pre- proceed with a wire transfer. So that's the vision I'm working towards that would up the security and increase the viability of the user experience as well. Now, Gary, one of the other things that um, typically is a challenge for CIM programs, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this, is you know, obviously consumers, customers, citizens that we were discussing earlier, that C, uh, they're all looking for that consistent ex- experience that we've been discussing. When you are working with organizations and there's m and activity going on, now all of a sudden, you know, what is it that we're adopting? How does it work within the particular framework we have? Do we have to look at somehow of kind of just basically kind of shifting everything over, forklifting it? Do we work with one another? Do we integrate them? You know, those challenges that come along the way. So maybe you can kind of give some perspective on what you've seen out there as, you know, what are those things that you've identified as some of the hurdles and some different ways and maybe approaches you've taken to kind of knock down those, those barriers? Sure, that's that's a very good point and right on topic. Uh, in my experience, M&A operations are typically run as a business endeavor, which by necessity is kept very secret and unfortunately ignores many aspects of technology. I originally experienced this during my tenure with Compaq when they acquired Digital Equipment Corporation. And the intent of the M&A operation was to consolidate redundant product lines while maintaining the customer base of both companies. And that uh, plan was, well, it failed to account for the customer's desires and needs to to not make arbitrary changes to their technology stacks. So for instance, if somebody had one kind of Unix server, they didn't want to just arbitrarily switch to another Unix server because the, the company, the vendor was saying, okay, we want to consolidate these product lines. So this delayed the merger from becoming accretive. I've seen that a bunch since then and in other ways, and certainly in the IAM IAM and SIAM experience, it's in that same category as M&A is typically run as a secret operation Emerging technology stacks is often an afterthought and possibly not even funded as a merger activity. I think the answer there is to have a technology template for M&A operatives to consider and to budget appropriately, but also to take into account whatever the technical debt is that's going to follow the M&A operation. So some initial steps to consider are merging the IAM and SIAM systems of both companies in phases. For instance, you can create a new class of super user that spans both enterprises as a potential solution, especially on the customer side. Um, 
so you, you look at things like, is the username currently available in both spaces uh, before you create any usernames? And the same applies to employees. You can do that there as well and grant special rights to users who have access in both spaces. Hey, Gary, I'm going to pivot back to the trust area. Um, okay. And you mentioned earlier um, one of the differences between SIAM and employee IAM is, is fraud. I mean, you may have it in both cases, but it's more prevalent on the CIM side. You also may have, you know, denial of service attacks. You may have money laundering kind of issues. Um, what are some of the mitigating controls that you recommend putting in place to help mitigate some of those, um, those threats? So, Initially, when we're establishing an account for a customer, um, it's really important to look at the verification services. And there's a number of them out there where you can pre-qualify the user, their phone number, their address, their credit history, what have you, and say, is this person a fraud risk? And score them appropriately and either give them a provisional account with limited access or give them a full-on account if you fully trust them. and then watch their transactions thereafter to see what they do with that account. Um, That kind of leads to one of my favorite tricks, and I employed this quite a bit at IHG, which is big data analytics. So now that you've got somebody on board as a user, you've got all kinds of opportunities to look at their transactions over time, look at their transactions versus other users, look for outliers, look for trend lines, Look for anything that would indicate that they are not a typical customer and and that might help identify them as being a fraudster. And the other thing that's really good, and I did employ this at IHG, and hopefully I'll get the opportunity to with E-Trade as well, is having alternative identity factors. So for instance, GeoVelocity was an example of this. So with the MFA system that I rolled out with IHG, it could tell you things like, okay, somebody logged in in Washington DC at 2 p.m. and then they logged in at, in Beijing at 2.30. Now it's possible they're using a proxy server, but that might also be something that a fraudster would do. So you need to pay close attention to that. So those alternative identity factors become very valuable when looking at trust. You, know, you have to go beyond just a password and, and what can you look at that is useful for identifying fraud. Do you have any recommendations about denial of service? Oh, <laughs> I, I have some. Um, it, it's, it's something that's very difficult to prepare for and you, you need to be able to scale up rapidly. And so having an elastic service that you can call upon like an insurance policy that says, okay, I'm under a DDoS attack. I need to immediately scale up to deal with the workflow and at the same time reject invalid requests coming in. Um, that's kind of the template case that uh, a lot of people are doing. I, I hear tell there's some, some new developments in that space that people are getting a little more sophisticated on DDoS. But as I mentioned, I, I'm, I'm more on the preventative side, so <laughs> I, I don't have to deal with that quite as much as a lot of other people do. Someone else's headache. Not a problem with that. <laughs> so, so Gary, you know, one of the other tenants we discussed kind of, uh, we, we mentioned earlier, I should say, is privacy. And so let's personalize a little bit. So if I'm looking at it from the privacy perspective, there's tons of privacy regulation out there. 
How do you deal with consumer PII information, um, data residency, right? Data subject access requests, this, this just so much in that space. How are you tying that aspect of privacy requirements that the customers are driving, you know, state legislations driving, obviously international countries have their own privacy laws. Um, how do you drive that into the program? What are some of the things that you're having to take and kind of pivot to support those type of requirements now? Yeah, this is um, a relatively new challenge for many businesses, um, certainly uh, with the rise of GDPR and um, the California regulations. It's now gotten the attention of businesses. And in fact, I recently encountered a situation where privacy was not defined as a business requirement for a system. And so product teams were initially reluctant to implement it. And uh, so I had to work with our compliance team and our, uh, our uh, business team to get that added as a business requirement. I think the, the traditional security CIA confidentiality, integrity, and availability requirements still apply. But some new requirements have crept in. The simple answer is to give the people what they want, which coincidentally satisfies regulators and compliance needs as well. Basically, you need to offer the customer the ability to inspect all data a company holds about them, as well as delete that data if they decide to end their relationship with that company. That seems to make customers and regulators very happy if you can just take those additional steps. And it's things that Previously, uh, especially in the U.S., uh, American companies have not considered to be important. It's like if somebody's a customer, we're keeping their data forever. And, and now it's a new consideration that that customer may have a right to inspect the data. They may have a right to make changes to the data. And they also may have the right to delete the data if they so choose. And, and, and understand why or the purpose for why you're holding that data. You need to understand that as well, right? Mm-hmm. That's very true. The, uh, there are regulatory compliance issues around explaining why data is being held or even asked for in the first place. So let's shift to another hot buzzword area is um, zero trust, zero trust architectures. Um, you know, our perspective is that identity is an important aspect of any kind of zero trust architecture. Do you see that as well as far as, as you're looking at how to implement a zero trust or support that kind of implementation organ in the, your organizations, you know, what are you doing on the IM and now CIM space to help with that? Yeah, it's probably more important on uh, IM than it is on SIAM, but I really like zero trust as I've, as I mentioned, I've been mostly focused on the preventative side of security in my career and it's a big component of it. And I do agree identity is a big part of that. So my approach with zero trust focuses initially on the foundational issues of security, such as vulnerability management, application security, software asset management, whitelisting, identity and access management comes in as well as anti-malware. So access management in a zero trust environment means validating that endpoints have all of these factors covered before allowing a full access to occur and allowing only limited access if the endpoint is not fully qualified and compliant. It's also important that the tenets of zero trust are applied consistently or with defined intent, at least, to all the involved systems. And so you create either a level level playing field of trust where everybody's at the same level of compliance or you can have degraded areas of compliance with an understanding that access will be limited in those areas. 
So yeah, I, I absolutely do think of it as a synergistic relationship there. How have, how have you seen organizations or you know folks like yourself make a successful business case to implement CTA? I mean, in, in the sense that it is a, a heavy lift to actually transform an organization um, to zero trust architectures, right? That's a, a real challenge, and and it's obviously expensive because it touches on a lot of different elements of uh, information security. The traditional way of justifying expenditures in information security is to point to somebody who's had a disaster and say, "Don't let that happen to us." Right. <laughs> but more and more, it's it is becoming a strategic differentiator, and you can say you should invest in this because customers care about this. And as more and more of these kind of cyber tragedies occur, more customers are becoming aware of this and it will very much become a differentiator for, for companies that are aware of that and can make allowances and investments in that space to say, okay, we're not going to let this happen to us and it's not going to happen to you and you should value that coming from us. Just a follow-up question on the, on the CIM side in that, in that context. Do, do you see customers demanding more security as far as their interaction with you? In some instances, yes. I mean, especially where it's PII or personal data that we're taking in, they want to assure that it's not getting leaked in any way. So especially things that are easily monetized like credit card data, they want to know that it's highly secure and in that respect, yes, they're very much involved in security. I don't think they care about like, you know, if, if my company loses MNPI, uh, material non-public information, um, they care uh, very much in self-interest of like, what are we doing with their data and how is it protected? Well, well Gary, I think, you know, the conversation is one that uh, I hope our listeners really appreciate because at times I believe that people think about well, I've implemented this IAM program, so I've supported the internal aspects of my employee population, and now I can flip the switch and kind of do the same thing from the consumer, the customer side of it. And that's not the reality, right? You can take elements for sure, as you just shared, but I think it's also important to look at different obstacles you may overcome, right? There's a bit more core elements that you are expecting as the consumer or the customer from whoever you're doing business with. And those elements, obviously, you've taken into account in the programs you've built out but also the hurdles that come at you as part of M&A activity, right? And everything that you need to ensure consistency of, again, of the experience is an example of that. So very interesting conversation. I think, you know, people should really gather insights from what you shared about. It's not just the same. There's much more growth opportunity in how you also sell it back to the business and what they can actually accomplish for growing the revenue and actually making security an enabler of how they're doing business going forward. So I think it's a great story. It's a great message. It's a proven one that you've gone through. We really appreciate you sharing that with us here today. So thanks, Gary. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for listening to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to have us cover a specific topic of interest, feel free to reach out to us and you can find out how in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe. This podcast was brought to you by CyberRes, a micro-focused line of business, where our mission is to deliver cyber resilience by engaging people, process, and technology to protect, detect, and evolve.